Hey folks, I'm going to get this out of the way up front today. If you are digging what you hear at the Enorma Cast, if you are a fan of the show, please consider supporting the project. One way you can do that is by heading over to defiantbean.com and ordering some fresh roasted coffee from our friend Jeff Hollenbaugh. If you enter Enormo at checkout, you'll get a discount in the Enormal Cast. You'll see a couple bucks. Another thing you can do is head over to enormacast.com, click on the t-shirt banner, and order some t-shirts for you, your family, your friends, your posse, whoever. Finally, if you want to, you can just hand me some money by clicking on the donation button and filling it in with whatever amount you feel is appropriate. That money goes right back into the Enormal Cast. I swear it does. I do not use it to supplement my collection of troll dolls. The easiest thing to do is go to enormalcast.com, click on the help out tab, and everything is clearly explained right there. Plus some really easy things you can do, like liking the Facebook page, going to iTunes and writing a review, or simply subscribing on iTunes. In the end, the most important thing to do is to spread the word, so tell your friends to listen. All right. Thanks for your time. On to the show. We gotta get Listen, uh, uh, where are you playing in town? You, are you playing here? We're doing the, uh, the Normo Dome, whatever it is. It's terrific. Oh, it's yeah, big place. That's, that's, that's a big nice. place. That's a big place. You sold What's it that? out. I'll see. You really should. Look, you better get up there before you panic. Those pens are loose. You're very good. I have really enjoyed having them with you. We'll make it. I don't think so. But we shall continue with style. Good weather, bad weather. Now or later, anytime. Hello and welcome to the Normal Cast. This is your host, Chris Caloose. It is February 24th. This is episode 29 of the Enorma Cast. 29 Enorma Cast. I can't believe it myself, and I've been here for everyone. It is about 7.30 Mountain Standard Time, and this one is a week late. Yes, I know. But if you listened to the last episode, which I know you did, you'll remember that I was in Columbia. I got back from Columbia a couple days ago, and this episode with Cody Roth was recorded in Colombia at Refugio La Roca near the cliff of Mojara in Colombia. And if you uh, go to Facebook, you can find Refugio La Roca, and I would highly recommend checking it out if you do go to climb in Colombia. Not only was it the sweetest, nicest place we hung out in Colombia, but also it was the best climbing. So yeah, on today's show, we have Cody Roth. Cody Roth is a climber who spent the better part of the last decade living in Europe. Cody grew up in Albuquerque, but spent enough time in Europe to really understand the scene over there. And that's the kind of meat of our conversation is talking to Cody about what he learned while he was in Europe, what the differences are with the climbing culture, what the gulfs that need to be bridged are between the U.S. and the climbing culture in Europe. And we also talk quite a bit about competition climbing, which I don't know too much about. And I think a lot of you guys probably don't know a lot about here in the U.S. because, frankly, we don't really care about it all that much. So before we get to that, a couple notes on the recording. This was another field recording. If you go to the website and look at the post, you'll see a picture of us sitting there, hanging out, drinking beers, and recording with the little handheld. 
And this was done in an open air room at Refugio La Roca. And as you can hear in many parts of it, uh, frequently interrupted. It was actually kind of hard to get settled in to do this one, but uh, it turned out to be kind of fun anyway and sort of funny, all the different interruptions. So there's bug noise, there's cars going by as usual, uh, the wind blowing, all those things you've come to know and love from the Enormacast field recordings. This one from deep inside of Colombia. So let's get to it. A conversation from one continent to another to another. From South America to North America to Europe and back with Cody Roth. It is. I pulled that right out of the fridge for you. There's a beer up here. There's a beer up right here. <laughs> Cheers. Use your eye socket. Oh, Use your eye socket. Not with these beers. I'm talking here. Okay. I'm talking to Chris Caloose. That's right. So um, I'm going to move it a little bit closer to you. All right. You want to put it over here? Yeah. Yeah. I'm left hand. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Are you really? We gotta, yeah, yeah. We gotta start with that. Um, I got because maybe I. Uh, do you need me to move? I need I no. Us to move? Yes. Uh, he has it. What are you doing? No, I need the crash, but that is down there because Ramiro is going to stay in the kitchen today. Because he can't go home. In fact, yeah, he cannot. And the place where he stays, he broke the. Oh uh, really? The door. So he's staying and with us tonight. Al- no, he's staying in the kitchen. Yeah, but in the kitchen. But, yeah. No, in your tent. Are you making like a walk? <laughs> No, he's no, gonna sleep on it as a bed. All right. Okay. Mattress, Cody. Lay. Yeah. Yeah. What are you doing? This is gonna. Next thing you know, he's gonna be walking on two legs because. Jesus, this is the toughest interview I've ever tried to get. <laughs> now you're gonna have some dude sleeping in the kitchen. No, <laughs> that Ramiro's the dog. Oh. <laughs> 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 Bert didn't get it until now. I was like, all right, a wall. And he's like, no, he's going to sleep on it. I was like, no, he'll be walking on two legs if we spoil him too much. <laughs> and Bert still didn't get it. <laughs> I thought it was the dog. I thought Romero was a person. Doesn't Romero sound like a dude's name? Yeah, it does, but in this case, it happens to be the dog. Is it Ramiro or Romero, Alex? What's the dog's name? Ramiro, Ramiro? Ravas? Ramiro. Hey. Ramilo. Ramiro. Ramiro. Like Rapiro, Ramiro. Ramiro, Rapiro. Ramiro. Why can't you make it like Carl? Because <laughs> 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 A very good answer, Alex. <laughs> A very good answer. Descansen, chicos. A mañana. Hasta mañana. 
Okay, so yeah, maybe we should start with that, sort of explaining where we are. Cody Roth, where are we? We are in La Mojara, Colombia, near the metropolis of Pucara Negra. No, Manga. Bucaramanga, Bucaramanga. Yeah, eight hours uh, by bus ride, if we're lucky, if you're lucky, north of Bogota. In this beautiful, awesome hostel called the... Refugio La Roca. Yes, the Refugio, Refugio La, La Roca. And we've been climbing here for about four days, five days, and uh, I decided to sit down with Cody. We've been trying to get this interview done for days, and even tonight it's been a little bit of a struggle, but finally we're sitting down. So I'm sitting here with Cody Roth, who is a pretty amazing climber and has spent, what, the last decade in Europe? Almost a decade. Almost a decade. How long were you there? Nine years. Nine years. But you grew up in New Mexico. I did. And that's where you started climbing. That's where I started climbing, and that's where I'm living once again. And we uh, decided to do this because I wanted to talk to Cody about... Essentially, he's an American who's looked hard at the scene in Europe and knows a lot more about it than a lot of Americans. And we were talking earlier about how the fact that Americans don't really pay that much attention to what goes on in Europe, other than we all just assume they're all amazing climbers and usually better than we are, and that's kind of where we leave it. So we're going to get into that, get into where Cody started and who he is, but that's really like the angle for this, dude, is that I, you know, the only reason I even heard your name, and I, you know, I, I try to think of myself as a student of climbing, is, uh, you know, stories from, from uh, Brittany Griffith. <laughs> when we were in Sicily about this guy that they've climbed with a bunch named Cody Roth, you know, jumping out windows and running naked down beaches, <laughs> if I if I <laughs> remember correctly. Is that a true story? I plead the fifth. <laughs> okay, excellent. We'll stay with that. So, that was um, in my younger days. You know, how is it that I've never heard of you, Cody Roth? How is it that the normal cast has never heard of Cody Roth? Yeah. That might take a few beers. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're a few deep. So. Maybe because I never cared Mm -hmm. you know i went to i grew up in new mexico um i loved climbing and i was always fascinated about the idea of europe when i was younger you know i started climbing around the age of 11 or 12 and i looked to europe for inspiration europe was what i was curious about in traveling and then i graduated high school i went to college for a year after that year i went to europe did the world cup I managed to do okay, and then I had the opportunity to stay in Europe, and then I didn't look back. Mm-hmm. So, you're a kid in Albuquerque. How did you end up starting to climb in Albuquerque? So, I think climbing first entered my consciousness at a young age. My dad is a swim coach, mm-hmm. and there was another guy named Flip Paulson, Gunnar Paulson, who was a good friend of my dad's who um, did expeditions and who was more of a peak bagger. Mm-hmm. And I can remember being five or six and then going to his slideshows when he climbed Gashabram and different peaks in the Himalaya. And I remember seeing his photos at a young age, and that made an impression on me. And that's when I that's the first time that the concepts of climbing entered my life, I guess, or my existence. And then I think around the age of 10 or so was the first time I had the opportunity to go top roping. And then a little bit after that, I convinced my mom after months of pleading to buy me a pair of climbing shoes. Mm -hmm. And then I had my pair of climbing shoes. And then by luck, 
there was a small bouldering area, a 20-minute walk from my parents' house. So I'd sneak away when I was in sixth grade, fifth grade, could do a little bit of bouldering. There was another top rope cliff that was also a 30- or 40-minute walk from my parents' house. And then I saved a little bit of money and I bought a climbing harness. And then I would go scout out that cliff and wait for other people to show up. And then as soon as I saw them top roping, I'd run up and I'd ask them if they would blame me. Oh, right on. I don't think I even knew how to tie a figure eight at this point. Really? <laughs> yeah, you have to remember, I was a sixth grader. And I'm slightly dyslexic, so anytime <laughs> I had John Long's book or whoever's book on how to tie knots. <laughs> but you have to imagine I was this dyslexic sixth grade kid. And I still couldn't quite figure out how to tie a figure eight. So I still had my harness. I figured out how to double back my black diamond bod harness. (laughs) (laughs) So you just like emerged from the I just emerged from the bushes. Oh, yeah, I would always scout it out. You could scout it out from another ridge. And as soon as I would see people, right? And it was tricky, too, because my mom bought the climbing shoes, but she wasn't really excited about the idea of me going alone. Right. So it was always sometimes I would stash the shoes in different places and so that I could leave from the house without having a backpack or anything. Uh-huh. And I'd say that I was going to play soccer. I'd make some other lame excuse. I wouldn't tell my mom I was going climbing alone. The horrible thing was sometimes if there weren't people there, I would go free soloing. And I mean, I was 11 years old at this stage or 12. Right. Um, so normally my, yeah, that was my, what would you say, my tactic, my my angle. Right. Was to, you know, scope this cliff. And then if people were there, oh, I was so stoked. And right. then I would just, you know, kind of pop out of the bushes. <laughs> All right. So when did you, when did you, uh, like, find a cohort? Like, when did you end so, up starting to find some guys to climb with so you didn't have to bug these uh, uh, strangers at the cliff? So I was who were wondering why your that. babysitter let you out of the house. <laughs> it was exactly that. That was the thing. Both of my parents worked full time. So also when there was a babysitter, I would say. So you were a latchkey kid that found climbing. Yeah, pretty much. Right on. At that stage, yeah, definitely. Um, So then I was fortunate in that. I did find three amazing mentors in Carolyn Parker um, and John Keir. They ran a guiding service out of Albuquerque, and they Mm -hmm. taught me how to belay Mm -hmm. and took me out. And then also in Lance Hadfield, those three guys definitely took me under their wing. And at that stage, I mean, I'm almost 30 now, so we're going back to when I was 12. I was kind of the only kid climbing in Albuquerque. Right. So they had a lot of patience with me and then took me climbing. And then even, how did that work? And even before them, there were, that was also brilliant. The first time, so there were a few things. There was the super old climbing gym in Albuquerque called the Albuquerque Rock Gym mm-hmm. that had mattresses, holds used mattresses from hotels. Right. Is the padding, if you can right. imagine. It's hard to imagine now, you know. Right. Because, yeah, Fast forwarding so almost 20 years, you know. Yeah. It was only top roping. There were glued on rocks. Mm-hmm. I kid you not. There's climbing holds mm-hmm. on this plywood wall. Um, but there were a couple cool guys at that place, too. That was before those guys kind of took me in even. There was another, a couple guys who were super cool who worked there, and they wound up taking me climbing. So then we went on a sport climbing trip, and mm-hmm. I'd never done any lead climbing. You know, I mm-hmm. just top roped mm-hmm. at this silly cliff, not far, walking distance from my house, right? And then, you know, I had John Long's book or whoever's book it was about climbing, or a couple of books at this stage that I saved money. And bought, but I still can really understand <laughs> because I'm dyslexic. <laughs> so I can remember I was like, ah, I really want to try lead climbing, but I don't want to admit to these guys. You know, I'm 12 at this stage, right? And then it took a lot of convincing 
to for me to even get permission to go climbing with them. And I was like, I don't want to admit to these guys that I've never led climb before. You know, that's embarrassing. Mm-hmm. And I was 12 and psyched and you don't want to do it. But I kind of read and looked at it and practiced constantly back clipping, not back clipping. Right. How you should prepare for a fall and the rest of it. Sure. And then we go to the Enchanted Tower, two hours south of Albuquerque. And then it's my turn to tie into the sharpened, you know, so I was so nervous, I remember. And I got to the third or fourth bolt, did all right, and then I was like, oh, I think I just need to try falling for the sake of Mm -hmm. falling. And it worked out okay. And then from there, I didn't really look back. So wait a second, I got a question. Okay, so so you're this little kid, I mean, 12, okay? And these guys that you're climbing with, who are who are they? What? How old are they? They were in their mid twenties. So one of them was so, actually. Well, let me ask you this: yeah. What is it about you that made them want to take you climbing with them? Do you think? I like, think I was how was it? A, were you just that persistent and I like, was that annoying? Persistent and that sucked. I wasn't annoying. I wasn't expecting them. I never asked. Right. But I think they just saw that I was super into it, and they were like, okay, we've got to get this guy outside. And right. So they were basically exposure. like, well, let's let's see what this kid can do, and and uh, and we can bring him up through the sport. That was because that, that's a kind of, a, of I mean, that's kind yeah, of a and that big, was brilliant. A big space. In yeah, age. and one of the guys, his name was Guy Prevost, actually, and I bumped into him a year ago, and oh, yeah. I hadn't seen him for probably 16 years. Really? It was so cool to bump into him again. He went on to Harvard and did, and he's an engineering specialist. And wound up moving back to Albuquerque. And we actually bumped into each other this past year, and I thanked him uh-huh. again for taking me out of my first league climb. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so you cruised up. You learned how to climb. You were climbing with these guys in your early teens. And not even teens, 12. Even, yeah, 12. 12. But I mean, moving up through the next few years. You know, so you didn't have any anybody else that was like... Your age or anything like that? Nobody. There's not a scene down there in Albuquerque. No, I was the kid. That was right at on. that stage. That was it. By the time I got into high school, there were more kids climbing, but at that stage, mm-hmm. I was the mm-hmm. only one. So, as and I give my parents a lot of credit for supporting me, and you know, their friends and other relatives thought it was crazy, right? And allowing me to go right. climb. And All right, so let's fast forward up to this World Cup thing. So you ended up going. I mean, you must have ended up getting into competition climbing then as a teenager. I did. The great thing that happened was when I was in eighth grade, another guy by the name of Brian Pletta, who worked for the Sandia National Laboratories in Albuquerque, uh, made a few good investments, and he was also part of the Pathfinder mission. They put um, that drone on Mars. Okay. So he took his money from that and decided to open up a proper climbing facility in Albuquerque. That happened when I was in eighth grade. And he picked Lance Hadfield, who's still a really good friend of mine, to be the manager of this facility. And they opened up this facility, and then that op- definitely opened up a door and a lot of opportunities for me. Uh-huh. So at that stage, I was in eighth grade, and then I had a decent facility where I could climb three days a week. And then they were just super supportive. They allowed me to wash holds and do other things and climb for free even at that stage. And um, yeah, that was definitely a game changer, I would say, mm-hmm. that facility opening. And then, so did you start competing just locally or nationally? So I started then at that stage, I guess that would have been around the same time that that facility opened. The whole junior climbing scene in America was just emerging at this point. Okay. That would have been, what, 1997, I want to say? Okay. Around 97, junior climbing was still a new thing in America in mm-hmm. 97. It's hard to imagine now there's so many young people climbing, but at that stage it was kind of a new thing. So in 97, and then, of course, there were still no junior climbing competitions in New Mexico. I had to go to Colorado for every competition I did, mm-hmm. you know. 
which was also hard to convince my parents and took money and yeah a lot of convincing mm -hmm. um, but then I would travel to Colorado and then do junior competitions yeah I went from being I think the first year that I competed at a junior national level I was probably 36th or so in my category mm -hmm. and then the next year I bumped up to fourth place in my category the great thing about that was it gave me the opportunity to travel then when I was 15 I got to go to Italy for the first or the not the first had been going on before that, but um, I got to compete in the World Youth Championships, which was in Italy. Uh huh. And then that was also great of my parents that they allowed me to take an extra week off from school, and I got to climb in the Verdun Gorge and in southern mm -hmm. France. And that really opened my, how would I describe that? Yeah, that was the first time that I got to travel and the first time that I got to climb abroad. And that definitely um, was an important part of my foundation, an important part of my, yeah, I guess it planted the seed, really. Right. what I do now. I love right. traveling and I love climbing. Uh-huh. And that was definitely the beginning. So did your parents go with you on those they trips? They did on that trip. Uh -huh. Even I have two younger brothers who are nine years younger than I am, and uh -huh. they even took my younger brothers on that first trip. Okay. Which was super cool. And then there were some other kids who were Aaron Shammy, who doesn't even compete anymore, mm -hmm. who was with me. And then another friend, Josh Haney, who also, he climbs them still. Um, the great thing was also on that trip, again, they had my younger brothers, but they still allowed me to go climb with those guys and do mm -hmm. my thing. Mm -hmm. at 14 right so how did you end up um, competing at Worlds when you were 19 so I continued with junior climbing through my teens mm -hmm. um, I was junior North American champion I think in 2001 I want to say or 2000 and then by the time how did that work so I finished high school in 2002 um, I went to Europe for three months with $2,000 with an open-ended ticket that was brilliant. I had another friend whose sister worked for Delta mm -hmm. Airlines, and mm -hmm. I got one of those friends and family tickets. I got to fly first class, actually, to Europe um, at a ridiculously cheap price at that time. And then I could leave at any time so long as the plane had room. Right. So I had $2,000. I knew college would start in September, and then it was pretty open-ended. I left in May and then spent a little over three months in Europe and managed to make the $2,000 last. Right. And I did a few World Cups. I didn't do great. Um, I climbed a lot around Europe, Seyus, all of the classic places. But um, And at that stage, even then, I was already thinking when I was in high school, I thought, no, I don't want to go to college. I just want to live in Europe and climb. But then I saw with that initial trip that I wasn't quite mature enough. Um, but it was a great what? experience. What? What? You know, I was a 16-year-old kid from New Mexico traveling alone. I mean, I did manage to right. go from Croatia all the way to Sweden on that trip. Right. On $2,000, mm -hmm. hitchhike, do well, What, what do you cool mean things. you said you, you were self-aware enough to say I'm not mature enough? I just didn't quite have it. I don't know. It was three months. Right. And that was great. I had mm -hmm. three months on my own, but I knew that I wasn't quite there, that I wouldn't be able to hack, you know moving to a foreign country and just being able to pull everything up. Mm -hmm. I just didn't quite have the confidence, let's say. Right. Let's say that. Maybe I just wasn't quite confident enough. So mm -hmm. I went back, and I had a scholarship to go to college. So I went back to New Mexico, used the scholarship for a year, and that was maybe part of it, too, that I had the scholarship, so I thought, okay, I should try college. Right. And my parents had kind of convinced me. They were like, look, go to college for one year, and if you hate it, then reassess. But. Mm -hmm. Because the deal was, if I didn't go to college that year, I would lose the scholarship. So I went back to New Mexico, went to college for a year on scholarship, and I liked it all right. And, but, of course, I was psyched right away to go back to Europe the next year. Okay. I was competing adult at this stage, um, and it was me and Vadim Wienerker. We were the two guys who were kind of pushing competitive lead climbing at that stage in America. And then I went back the next summer, so I was 19 at this stage, and... Um, 
All right, so what year is this? This is 2000, and what year would have that been? 2003. Okay, so it's 2003. So 10 years ago. 10 years ago. It's just so alien from, like, where I was as a climber in 2003. Yeah, and it was alien. I don't know why I was so into it, but it was... You know, when I was younger, you'd read climbing magazines. I would get European magazines and mm-hmm. see French guys like Arnaud Petit, Francois Petit, Francois Legrand, all of these guys, and that's kind of what I looked up to for some reason. And, you know, I climbed on French limestone when I was 15, and I was like, right. oh, my God, like, this is amazing. Mm-hmm. And for some reason, that kind of became my focus, or that was... Mm-hmm. I was just excited about that. And, yeah, that year went better. So the first year I did World Cups, kind of similar to my junior climbing experience at 14. You know, the first time when I was 18, when I went out to do World Cups, I was in the 30s and the 40s, back of the pack. And then that year, yeah, my first... So I'd only done two World Cups at that stage, if even that. Um, Yeah, I did two World Cups the year that I was 18 Mm -hmm. when I went Mm -hmm. for three months. And then I flew back to Europe, and then, lo and behold, my first World Cup, it was brilliant. I remember... I barely qualified for the semifinals at that stage. I don't know how it's working now. But then they took 25 people into the semifinals, and I qualified in 24th place. And, I mean, I was super low budget, you know. All of the way it works, you know, with competitive European climbing, It's there's so many differences, and a lot of it has to do with the politics. But um, So basically in Europe, climbing is a recognized sport. And different European countries have a sports council, mm-hmm. and they get funding from the government. This is okay. something that America doesn't get, right? So let's say, for example, France, Austria, Italy, really in a European country, every country has a sports council. And because climbing is a recognized sport, they can get money, which then goes towards you know World Cups and competitive climbing. Okay. So they're all staying in fancy hotels and that sort of thing. I was camping in a right. leaky tent. Right. <laughs> and walking to the climbing competition, camping in a leaky tent totally alone. Yeah, but that's lagged. like that's like, you know, the lone wolf. I mean, it's, oh, yeah, it was that great. I went for it for the world. Like, it yeah. was. I mean, I didn't I mean, those guys are pampered like, weenies. Right. You're like, you know, you want it, you need it. Yeah, you realize it after the fact. At the okay. time, I didn't really realize it. You know, right. you're like, wow, like those guys are staying well, in a five-star up, hotel so and they've got a masseuse. True? You know, they're in a five-star yeah. hotel and they have a massage therapist. And then I was, like, you know, eating a kebab on the street (laughs) and sleeping in my leaky tent (laughs) in a campground. Right. But Nicolas Favres was in that same campground. Uh I have to say we were the only two, which is kind of cool. That's fucking legit right Which is kind of cool. Yeah. That's I remember Nico and I were camping next to each other. Right on. But we were the only competitors in that particular competition camping. How did Nico do? He did, I gave him some good beta, and he did make it also into the semifinals, mm-hmm. like I made it at that mm-hmm. competition, but he didn't pull finals. And then that was the crazy thing in my case. So the way it works, you know, if you they take 25 people into the semifinals. Mm-hmm. I was 24th, and then you climb in reverse order, right? So I was the second person to climb that morning, I can remember. And I remember I totally, one move changed my life in a way. And that's something that I always look back on. And that I made a horrible mistake in reading the sequence, right? Okay. Because everything's on site. This is a lead climbing competition. You look at it for four or five minutes, and then you go on site, right? Right. And you've and come, come out of isolation. I've come out of isolation. There were a few funny things that happened. Okay, I've never said this publicly, but since it's the normal cast, All I'm nearly right. 30 we're... years old, and it doesn't matter. <laughs> um, there were a few funny things that happened. So I'd kind of thought that Francois Legrand was my friend, and he was my hero, right? Right. But in a competition... If somebody's, you know, 
competitive to the core, nobody's your friend, right? Right. And actually, I still don't know to the day, but I think it was intentional. Francois actually gave me really horrible beta. Ah. Where in the semifinal, he was trying to convince me that handholds were footholds, and he was totally trying to mess up my beta. Okay. Luckily, I didn't believe it. But there was another thing I didn't see that I now, totally messed up. Do you speak French? Up. A little bit. Does he speak English? He does. Okay. Yeah. So he was and maybe doing it wasn't English. actually into Francois' credit. I don't wonder. He's a nice enough guy. Right. He was very competitive, but maybe honestly he did think it was like that, and maybe he was just trying to help me. But either way, Francois Legrand gave me really bad beta. <laughs> but I'm sorry, it's public now. Francois, oh you gave God, me bad this beta. This is a huge scandal. This is the first time I've gone public. It's, uh, hopefully it won't be as crazy as the Lance Armstrong scandal that's rocked the world. Huge. I know a lot of a normal cast I'm kind of worried that I've opened up a can of worms. I apologize. But still to this day, I wonder if he gave I me really bad data or if it was the setup. The normal cast, Francois Legrand. I mean, it's on a, okay, almost Francois synonymous. Legrand was one of the most successful competitive climbers okay. of the 90s. Right. 2000s. It was yes. the swan's last dive, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. He, no, he was a great sport climber in general. Yeah, I still need to talk to him about that. I don't know if he honestly had that bad a beta or if it was a setup. All right. And the next anyway, time I see him, so you're in isolation. Yeah. Francois giving you horrible beta. Horrible maybe beta right before purpose, I climb. I've already maybe tied by into mistake. the rope. I've already tied into the rope, you know, because you've got the little chair in isolation. Then they bring you the rope, and it's really? as I'm tying into the rope that he's giving me the bad beta. So you're you're like. In a little room, and the rope leads out into the... Yeah. Wow. Yeah, a, but you're not seeing that? anything, right? Because you're not seeing... Because they're prepping you, and right. they, you know, they want everything to run smoothly, oh, okay. so you're on deck, basically. Okay. It's like when you play baseball oh, wait, as wait, a kid. Wait. Some guy's beeping his horn outside. All right, go It's ahead. like when you're playing baseball as a kid, and you're warming up there in the dugout. Sure, sure. That's exactly like that. Okay, so you got bad beta from Francois. And then, I still am the only English-speaking person, right, who looked at the route and who did all of the other junk. And there was another thing that I didn't see, and that's the move that changed my life. And there was one hold where you were supposed to match. It had an edge on top and an undercling on the bottom, okay. and I never saw the undercling. <laughs> so I grabbed this edge, right? And then I look up, and this next hold is this sloper. It was just, I don't know how I stayed on the wall, Chris. Mm -hmm. Honestly, to this day, I still remember this move like it was yesterday, and I'm okay. horrible about remembering sequences, but I'll never forget this. And I had the edge, and then I crossed completely. I drive-by totally over my body uh -huh. and caught the sloper and hung on by a thread. Okay. And this was only at the third bolt. So if I would have blown this, forget it, you know. I would have okay. been in 24th place. Right. But somehow I managed to hold on, and I was even surprised that I held on myself. And I continued climbing, and then, like I did all right, I got pretty high on the route. I definitely got... 80% up the route or so. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I thought, oh, you know, I was psyched with the effort. You know, I did, by no means did I expect that I'd be top eight after that. Mm -hmm. I thought, oh, I did all right. And then I sat back, and then that was the funny thing. Then a lot of heavy hitters came out and were falling below me. Um, at that time, Tomas Mrazek was a great climber. He's kind of retired from climbing at this stage. There was Christian Breno, who's still an amazing all-around climber. I remember competing, and they, these guys were falling below me. Okay. And I was like, wait, I'm in a dream. You know, at this point, I'm pinching my skin. Christian Brenner at this time, this is going back to 2002, was still, had won World Cups and was falling below me. Okay. Mrazek had been world champion and fell below me. Um, and then, like, these guys were super strong, and I was like, wait a minute, this isn't happening. Mm -hmm. And then I thought, okay, maybe I'll be top 15. How cool would it be to be top 15, you know? And then it continues, and then suddenly I can't be any lower than top 10. 
And I'm like, whoa, hold on. I could be top 10. Okay, this would be rad. But I'm not making finals. I'm not making finals. And then by the end of the competition, I was in seventh or sixth place. I can't remember. Mm -hmm. And was in finals. And then I was like, no way, you know. And then the finals rolled around. And then I managed to do, I think I pulled up sixth place. In the world. In the world. 19-year-old Cody Roth, sixth place in the world. It was a nice moment. Do you remember the fucking hole, but you don't remember what place you got? I think it was six, Andy. We can Google it. I'm pretty sure it was six. Shut up, Burr. I mean, I didn't. the one thing I didn't do in competitive climbing, I never made a podium at a World Cup. And that was, I was a bit of a flash in the pan. Once I achieved that, it was hard for me to reboot and stay psyched with competitive climbing. Mm-hmm. By that stage, then kind of the exoticness or the thrill of it kind of wore off. Sorry to interrupt. Go ahead. Go and interrupt. Me again? So this was like your third World Cup. Yeah. And you do super well, and then you're over it. I kind of lost motivation. More than kind of. I was like to climb outside and travel after that. All right. So just All listen right. in. You're gonna- I think Andy pulled off a good cameo there, but right, well, we we'll don't see. want to mess I'll see what I keep cast. in here from I from apologize. <laughs> yeah, so... interlude. All right, so you you finish amazingly well in this World Cup, better than you ever expected. And is this when you sort of decide that Europe's your place? Yeah, pretty much. And that was the nice. That was what was great about that competition was that it opened a lot of doors in Europe for me. Okay. Suddenly, I was. Well, the thing is, 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 and I've had some listeners, specifically listeners from Europe, that wanted, you know, suggested, oh, you need to talk to some competition climbers and. And frankly, it's just it's so far out of my wheelhouse that I do have a hard time sort of uh, what's the word I'm looking for relating. Thank you. Yeah, I do have a hard time relating to it. However, <clears throat> I also you know it's it's without a doubt obvious that in the United States we as a climbing community we just don't care about it as much as people as climbers do in Europe. I mean, it's just not as a big a thing here. You know, it it definitely has a feeling of climbing competitions being very sort of esoteric and within a an, within a pretty tight community, kind of friends and family supporting it, and not a lot of sort of universal appeal. Yeah, and, and it, that makes it challenging. Right. I mean, honestly, okay. So in Europe, you can just like I was saying before. You know, and in the case of Austria, in the case of France, in the case of the Madrid, Switzerland. You know, there's um, political funding for competitive climbing. Mm-hmm. Competitive climbing was a deal where all of my travel would be paid for to go to the climbing competitions, where I could expect to get money monthly mm-hmm. for being competitive. Then I would have definitely done competitive climbing for a couple more years, right. for sure. You know, if you're from Holland, for example, um, I think the Dutch Federation for a while, or even now, is paying some of their climbers, you know, along the lines of $2,000 a month mm-hmm. in support. Mm-hmm. If I could get $2,000 from the American government a month, I might not be doing it now. I mean, I'm pushing 30 now, but I definitely would have carried on until right. I was 25, 26, right. something like that. So meanwhile, though, you, you have an interest in, in outdoor climbing. Is, is that right? Or? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And even at that stage when I was 19, and that's the thing that's also special about competitive climbing. Mm-hmm. So going back to 2002, or rather that was 2003, going back to 2003, 10 years ago. 10 years ago, you could train a little bit, but you could still be a rock climber and not totally focused on competitive climbing mm-hmm. and still be able to do okay at a World Cup. You know? Right. 
you could, you definitely, I had to train a little bit, but I didn't have to have a specific training regimen, let's say. Right. And a little bit of talent. Sure. And you could maybe be a World Cup finalist sure. like I was. Mm -hmm. Fast forward to where we are now, and you pretty much have to be Adam Andra if you have any chance of being a World Cup finalist mm -hmm. without following a strict regimen and without making that your ultimate focus. So, so in other words, you have to be as talented as him to be able to do both. I think so. And, and otherwise... You have to be in a gym with a training schedule and be just focused on nearly um, climbing, that. I mean, right? there's a few guys who can make sure. it work doing a little bit of both, but it's the type of thing where, for example, let's say you live in a place like Innsbruck, Austria, where it rains a lot mm -hmm. and where you definitely have to be disciplined. If the weather's good, you can't say, oh, it's a great weather day. I'm going to go do X, Y, Z, go mm -hmm. climb out. Mm -hmm. You definitely have to be more disciplined. Right. Climbing has become way more specialized compared okay. to what it was in 2000, specifically competitive climbing, mm -hmm. is way more specialized than it was 10 years ago. But climbing in general, I feel like, has become more and more specialized, and I'm by no means a specialist. So after I'd done that, I was kind of ready for the next challenge, I guess. Mm -hmm. Maybe I wasn't even ready. Maybe I didn't even know that I was ready, but... Mm -hmm. Um, the thrill was kind of gone. So how did you find it? How did you find a situation that would support you in Europe? It was super tricky. <laughs> At the beginning, I worked on farms, picking grapes and apples, digging uh -huh. ditches. You know, so at that stage, how did that work? So I did that competition. That went pretty well. And then I had offers to do route setting in different gyms in Europe and earn some okay money. Um, and then I was staying with my friend Killian Fischhuber who's gone on to be the five-time champion of the bouldering World Cup. Okay. Um, so I was staying in Killian's apartment, and we were climbing lots together, just having a blast, you know. And then I kind of realized, okay, like, if I want it, now is the chance, in a way. Mm -hmm. I'd always wanted to live in Europe, and then the opportunity kind of presented itself. I was route setting and making a little money at that. I was 19 mm -hmm. and willing to dig ditches and to do any sort of silly work necessary to make the money. Um, and then I just committed and started bringing money in that way. And then I decided that I had September rolled around and then I just decided not to go back to New Mexico. Right. And so you'd spent one year in college at that point? One year in college. Yeah. Okay. And so now you were, you were committed. What did your parents think? Yeah, at first they were um, a bit surprised, and we talked a lot about it, and then at mm -hmm. the end, I mean, I think the one thing that my parents have always respected is that I've always been independent about what I've wanted to do, that sure. their opinion has never influenced me too much. And in the case of my mom, in my mom's case, she um, always wanted to study art, and her parents wouldn't support it, mm -hmm. and she went on to study banking. Um, my dad wanted to be a doctor. His dad was a businessman and wasn't supportive of his interest in studying medicine, so he went on to study accounting. Mm -hmm. And I think they both appreciated the fact that I didn't really care. Right. So at the end of it, when then when I was really committed, they said, all right, go for it, do your best, and um, you know, if shit hits the fan or if you decide you don't like it, you can always come back here and we'll support you the best that we can. Back to the queue. Back to the queue. But they were like, but go for it and good luck. And, mm -hmm. you know, we can't give you a lot of money, but if everything goes south, we can pick up the pieces. So, so you're sort of... So that was huge when right. I said that. So, so you're, definitely, you're, you're Europhilia, if you want to call it that. Isn't that a Europhile, Europhilia? 
<laughs> Did I just make that word up? Just keep rolling with it. <laughs> yeah. Your obsession with Europe, that was completely self-generated. It had nothing to do with some sort of, you know, your your parents had been there or your... Not at no, all. No? Other than they also thought Europe was a cool place and understood sure. why I was psyched about it. Uh-huh. As, as particularly when mm-hmm. it came to climbing. Right. They understood that Europe had more infrastructure for climbing, more mm-hmm. of what I was into. Right. Well, you ended up there because of the World Cups, right? Exactly. And they had been there before when I was in my junior years, and they'd also thought that it was... That's where the fetish came from. Do you mind? (laughs) (laughs) We're trying to have an interview here. (laughs) I won't say another word. He's bringing up good points. I won't say another Yeah, but we already covered that. Well, you just asked him about it. Again, then. Okay. Burr's reiterating what's been reiterated. Okay. (laughs) All right, so you end up in Salzburg. How'd that happen? Innsbruck, actually, not Salzburg. Innsbruck. Innsbruck. Is Salzburg in Austria? It is. All right, good. So I was near. All right, you end up in Austria. Can we just do that? Sure. Okay. Yeah, I ended up in Austria mainly because of Killian Fischuber. Mm -hmm. I have to credit him for that. uh, All right, so, you know, not to beleaguer a point, but that's, you know, Killian Fischuber. Okay. Five-time bouldering World Cup champion. Yeah. One of the strongest climbers you know. Definitely. Without a doubt, okay? Without a doubt. Never heard of him. Yeah. In the U.S. Yeah, and I mean, the ironic thing is he's won the bouldering World Cup at least twice in Bale, mm-hmm. Colorado. Uh-huh. Not right. too far from where you live. Sure. But it's a different world. It's a totally different world. Yeah. And the great thing about Killian is that he's bridged all of the different worlds of rock climbing. Really? He's, you know, done multi-pitch climbs up to 514, alpine mm-hmm. sport climbs in difficulty. Right. He's done sport climbs, you know, he's repeated action directs, he's done hard sport climbs. He's done bouldering up to, he doesn't really care too much about grades, but he's definitely done bouldering up to V14, V15, mm-hmm. whatever mm-hmm. you want to mm-hmm. call it. He's sponsored by Red Bull. Right. He makes a very comfortable living sure. climbing. Sure. He's a household name in Austria. Right. But you've never heard of him. No, I've never heard of him. And I would venture to guess that, that a lot of people listening to this have never heard of him. Yeah, and you would be. Right. So which is, I think, that's, let's move on to that. So we, we've, we've gotten your sort of background, and as an American who wanted to, you know, wanted to live in Europe, found that the infrastructure there and the culture there of climbing was really appealing to you. You know, so... As a guy who lived there for nine years, is that correct? Nearly nine. Nearly nine years in Austria. What are some of the things that you know you could point to as the big differences with the culture there, with the way people were approaching climbing or, or any of those things? Like, Why is it that there is this, this gulf between the two worlds, so to speak? Yeah, I mean, that's a, a big question, worlds. but let's there's get into it. There's a lot it. of worlds that we're golfing in between, to, yeah. in between there. Um, where do we begin with that? So, in Europe, there's definitely more people climbing than there are okay. in America. Right. Um, there's a lot of talented people. I mean, climbing. I've always pointed to that as that, as that there, there, there's a much longer legacy of it. Absolutely. Possibly, you know, the... No, the, definitely. Not possibly. Absolutely. Right. Pe- people were climbing in the Alps when, when, you know, the United States was like a frontier colonized place. You know, we're talking about the Alps being being something of the the proving grounds for the original alpinism, which then became rock climbing. So there just seems to be more of a tradition of it. Would you say that's true? Absolutely. 
I mean, in places like France, Italy, it started out as an aristocratic sport, mm -hmm. and then has evolved to what it is today. Right. Which it's, I mean, climbing is a super diverse sport. There's not very many people doing every facet of climbing. Mm -hmm. Like we said before, it's becoming more and more specialized. Right. Europe definitely has had a head start on any other part of the world. Right. When it comes to climbing, without a doubt. And then, like I said before, you know, there's so much um, state funding for climbing in Europe mm -hmm. that makes a huge difference. And every and that definitely approaches. That's not just competitive climbing, you know. That comes to bolts in different climbing areas. For example, in Austria, different um, the Alpine Federation will pay for bolts to go into different climbing sure. areas. Let's say in some of the valleys, the tourist bureau pays mm -hmm. for people to bolt routes mm -hmm. because it's, they see the climbing is. Um, a source of income. Sure. That if it attracts tourists, that it'll be good for their community. Mm -hmm. So the tourist bureaus put money into it. And that's been going on for a while. That probably even started in the 90s. Right. Or early 90s. Can you think of any example in the U.S. where, where a municipality paid for Bolt? I'm sure. I mean, I think I can think. I'm of sure something exists, but I, I don't know. Of right. It. But I can, I'm sure. It I can think of plenty where Maybe. they where they tried to stop you from putting bolts in. Sure. <laughs> no, there's way more where they tried to stop you. Yeah. And it's just a different mentality and a different approach. Mm -hmm. Is what it amounts to. And I mean, everywhere in the world, for different reasons, there's access access issues. Right. When it comes to climbing, but um, Europe is definitely more pro climbing than. I'd say any other continent in the world. Mm -hmm. You know, we're here in Colombia right now, and we're even hearing of different crags that are on private property where people are pulling the bolts and chopping the bolts. Right. And then in a place like Austria, for example, even if you own the lands, you don't necessarily own the cliff, which is kind of an interesting thing as far as the laws go. Right. And the same thing with Slovenia, Italy, a lot of countries. No, Europe. wait a second. What was that? So sometimes the way if you really get into the nitty-gritty as far as the laws go, right. you might own the land, right. but you might not necessarily own the rock when you get to the claws and the fine print of the land. So you own the horizontal but not the vertical. Exactly. And sometimes you even have to give access to the, to the vertical that you don't own. And then as far as liability goes, I think that's been the main hindrance in America, mm -hmm. is the liability laws when it comes to owning land. Mm -hmm. Liability laws, if, even if somebody, so let's say I own the land, mm -hmm. and I have some amazing climbing on my land, if there's an accident or if something like that happens in Europe and a lot of other places in the world, it's not my problem. Right. Or I'm not liable. Right. Well, I it think that's, totally a, I think that's probably a big, bigger issue in the East, you know, and We've actually commented on the show before that the access things with private property aren't such a big deal in the West. You know, we deal a lot more with federal agencies. But at the same time, we have federal agencies that at times tend to be anti-climbing, tend to be anti-anchors, tend to be anti-bolts. And not just bolts, but even with traditional climbing, oftentimes you need anchors to go down or whatever. And, you know, the Forest Service constantly is threatening to, to ban anchors. And... You know, when I go to Europe and when I've climbed there, it's like when I've tried to even explain that to people, they just they they don't even understand what I'm talking about. Like that a government agency would be so worried about these little things out in the middle of nowhere. The funny thing is, though, as far as climbing accidents and that sort of thing, mm -hmm. liability is huge in Europe, which is something you have to take into consideration as an American. For example, if you and I were climbing in a gym in Austria and if I drop you. I'm legally responsible. The climbing gym itself for our accident right. has no liability. 
So, you know, in America, if you have an accident, normally it's kind of 50-50. That you're kind of responsible for me as your belayer, and I'm responsible for you as the climber. Mm -hmm. But in Europe, it's totally the other way, where the belayer kind of has full responsibility. So let's talk a little bit about this celebrity. You mentioned your, your roommate at the time, uh, Killian, was making a pretty good living as a, as a rock climber. He is now. At the time that we right. lived together, he hadn't quite established himself mm -hmm. just yet. So at that stage, he wasn't making an amazing living for himself. He was doing all right. But then the following years, when he started to win World Cups and when he became the World Cup overall champion, so that meant he won the season of World Cup events, which sure. is like nine events where he won the most events and had the highest point tally. And then he started to become a household name, you know. Mm -hmm. He got a Red Bull contract. Then the Austrian military later on even wanted to sponsor him and does sponsor him, et cetera, et cetera. And now he has a super comfortable living from climbing um, where he has an agent who deals with, all, with everything. He has an accountant who deals with all of his finances. Mm -hmm. It's a totally different world from here. Is that somewhat common? That's also an interesting thing in that from country to country it's different. Austria okay. is a relative wealthy country, mm -hmm. um, and there's great infrastructure around climbing. So if you have that type of success as an athlete in Austria, then it's common. Mm -hmm. You know, people who play table tennis in Austria also have probably equal um, sponsorship and income. Really? Yeah. Table tennis. Table tennis. Is that big in Austria? It's not huge, but there was a guy who was quite talented and was probably just as well sponsored as Killian Fischer, <laughs> you know? But in that sense, the playing field is fairly even. You know, in a place like Austria, skiing still probably the national... Skiing and soccer Absolutely, yeah, they're are huge. the two biggest sports. Sure. Skiing is huge. Right. Soccer is huge. So those guys are making the biggest money. But still, the guys making, playing table tennis are making decent money. Mm -hmm. Just because sport, overall, regardless of what the discipline is, is respected. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, and like, again, I'm, what, everything you're saying is sort of coming into my brain as an American and as an American climber, more specifically. And at sometimes, I'm, I, you know, I think about people making money and being these sponsored climbers and and everything else is it just automatically instinctually to me seems like not the best thing in the world for climbing necessarily and i can't even say why that is but it's i still have this feeling of you know climbing being the essence of it being super individual you know in that you you go at it for all your own reasons and you know if somebody starts pumping money into it it's not necessarily a good thing. Yeah, and I would agree with you 100%. And from person to person, it um, translates differently. Mm -hmm. The thing that I think is super inspiring, let's say, with a person like Killian, right. who's making great money being mm -hmm. a climber, what's brilliant, or would you call it brilliant? I don't know what you would call it, but what I really admire about Killian is that he loves climbing. Right. And that the amazing thing about Killian, so with his whole competition thing, that's where he's made his money, and that's where he's made his... Um, fame, let's say, you know? and the, But he's also an amazing rock climber. And the cool thing about Killian is that because he's, you know, made all of this money competi climbing mm -hmm. competitively, 
his rock, there's no pressure when it comes to rock climbing. Mm-hmm. And the awesome thing is he goes rock climbing all over the world. Right. Does first ascents and does different things and doesn't care about the grade. Mm-hmm. Because he's not a greedy person by nature. He's made his decent living and he's kind of proved himself on this competitive stage, mm-hmm. right? He's gone to the bouldering World Cup. Sure. He's proved five times that he's the overall champion, right? So he goes bouldering in South Africa. He goes sport climbing in Australia. He does whatever in Austria, and whatever he does, he doesn't really care about the grid. He just does it. All right, so let's talk about bridging this gap. So would you say, I mean, based on what you're saying about this guy, and we're using this, you know... He's become our example for the moment. Right, and, you know, I'll look what I can find online and and link it to the website so people listening can find out who this guy is. Because, honestly... You know, I'm sure there's. Uh, I have European listeners, and are going to be like, "Oh yeah, we know that guy for sure." But you know, most of the people here in the states aren't going to know who the hell we're talking about. But to bridge that gulf, I mean, would you say that the essence, you know, of the climbers in Europe, these guys that are pushing it indoors on these competitions, but also climbing outdoors? I mean, is it really the same thing? I mean, is this guy just trying to make a living so he can climb all the time? Is Killian trying to make a living so he can climb all the time? I would say with Killian, what's also brilliant about him, I wouldn't say that climbing is his mm-hmm. sole focus. Right. He's also interested in other things. Okay. But it's, he's also made a comfortable living from climbing. Well, let's but move going on. beyond that, I would say that what's also great about the Innsbruck community, particularly where Killian lived, mm-hmm. lives and where I lived, is that understatement is respected. Okay. That understatement carries huge value. So that's the same. I mean, as the states, that there's a tradition in climbing that if somebody sprays too much, that we're not we're not interested in them anymore. Yeah, you know. And so you say that you're saying that that crosses over. Absolutely, and is even maybe more. Would you say prevalent? Uh-huh. I don't know. I would say it's even more prevalent or even more respected. Let's say mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. in Innsbruck than it is in America. Right. Is that specific to Austria? I think in Austria, definitely, that it plays a big role. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are certain individuals in Austria who take it too far. There are some sponsored athletes who might have a photo of themselves on their car <laughs> and different things. <laughs> but they have to do... But they exist, for sure. There are some competitive climbers. Right. There are some ice climbers mm-hmm. who push the term extreme climber and blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. So they might get a little bit more money for that, right? Right. But at the same time, they have to do the walk of shame every time they show up at the crag or any time they go to the bar. Right. They have to live with the fact that they're not really respected by the core and that anywhere they go, there is that walk of shame. Sure. So you kind of have to decide, okay, do you want to make a little bit more money and do the walk of shame or do you want to be... I mean, maybe they're kind of oblivious to the fact that they're doing the walk of shame. Right. But if you sell your soul, you definitely will have to do the walk of shame if you live in Innsbruck. So that's some similar. people do. Right. So that's similar, maybe. Uh-huh. Although I haven't seen any climbers yet in America who drive around in a car with their <laughs> photo on the car. <laughs> but maybe it's out there. I don't travel a lot in America. I'm going to so. do that, actually. I'm going to be the first. Chris, <laughs> if you did it as long as you're getting a good bonus, a I'm going to take a sweet Andy Burr photo and stick it to the side of the mobile studio. You've just got to make sure that you have <laughs> photo copyright right. Andrew Burr exactly. across the bottom. Mm-hmm. And then I'll say, all right, I'll endorse that. All right, so you're back in the U.S. now. You've split in, in Innsbruck. 
and uh, you're making you're making a living as a climber. Yeah, I mean, I'm a jack of all trades. Okay, I do training, I do route setting. Uh huh. I get a little bit of money from my sponsors. Right. What do you drive? <laughs> a super old pickup <laughs> that I'm replacing very soon. You're not driving an Audi, is that what no, you're telling me? Although I'm thinking of replacing it with either a Passat or a Mini. Yeah, of course you are, you little Europhiliac. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. So how'd you end up back in the states? So after almost nine years in Austria, mm-hmm. I kind of reached the pinnacle of what I could do, the way I saw it. Um, and also what I didn't go into was the whole nine years that I was in Europe, I was always dodging different visa issues, Okay, which was quite stressful mm-hmm. and not easy. And I'd kind of seen that the writing was on the wall. And honestly, I thought that Cape Town, South Africa would be the next city that I would live in. Okay, I've spent a lot of time climbing in South Africa. I love Cape Town as a city. And I'd kind of seen, okay, I've kind of hit the peak of what I can do. Cape Town's the next place I want to immigrate to. Mm-hmm. Um, lo and behold, I ran, in, ran into a visa issue that I didn't know I'd run into. It wasn't detrimental, but um, I had to leave Europe for a while, and I hadn't been back to New Mexico for two years, actually. I okay. hadn't been home for two years. And then I thought, okay, now if I have to go back, I had to leave Europe for 90 days. Mm-hmm. And I thought, all right, if I have to leave Europe for 90 days, I haven't been home in two years, let's go back to New Mexico. And then I wound up liking it way more than what I had anticipated. Mm-hmm. It wound up being totally different from what I'd remembered. Okay. And then that changed my perspective. So now I'm living in New Mexico, but you know, this last summer I was in Africa for two months, mm-hmm. I was in Europe for two months. I traveled four months out of last year, and this year I'm also traveling a lot. So it doesn't feel like too much has changed. Um, I'm still spending a lot of time traveling, but I guess the only thing that's changed is that Innsbruck is no longer... Even when I lived in Innsbruck, I was still traveling four to six months out of the year. Okay. And now Albuquerque is my base instead of Innsbruck. So when you said that, that your perspective had changed, that the, when you came back to Albuquerque... Um, your perspective changed. What, what do you mean by that? Albuquerque as a city has changed in the 10 mm-hmm. years that I was gone. Um, as far as climbing goes, there is so much new climbing mm-hmm. that's been developed and that I've discovered and that I'm excited to develop mm-hmm. that I didn't even realize was there 10 right. years ago. And that's what really changed. And then after living in a rainy, damp environment for almost nine years, it's nice to be in a place where you don't even have to look at the weather every weekend when you want to climb or right. any time you want to climb. There's always good weather. Mm-hmm. It's just a matter of what cliff do you want to develop, where do you want to invest time. And all of that appeals to me at the moment. So you went on this trajectory where you were you know, wanting to be this competition climber. You achieved your goals to a certain extent you know, with that finish in the, uh, the World Cup, having sort of matched some of your heroes if not beaten them, and uh, moved on to, to, to making a living and, and sort of a climber lifestyle in, in Europe. So where are you now? I mean, in terms of you're 30, you're looking at being in Albuquerque and traveling a lot. So how are you putting it together now? It's still a running gun, uh-huh. I'd say for sure. Um, I'm excited and that I'm training um, six different kids now mm-hmm. and building a small youth program, let's right. say, or individual training in Albuquerque, which I'm really excited about. So in that sense, it's kind of gone full circle for mm-hmm. me. Um, I wor- still work for La Sportiva Europe, where I do um, 
I'm responsible for all of the publicity for uh, online advertising for all of our European athletes, mm-hmm. which is cool and exciting, I guess. It's nice that I still have a foot in the door there, um, and that I'm still doing route setting all over the world, and I'm still thinking about what's the next thing that I want to invest in. Mm-hmm. So I guess I'm still in a state of flux, <laughs> but um, I'm happy. Last thing, then, I guess we'll wrap this up on this. And, you know, the reason I want to talk to you on the Normacast, um, so we've been hanging out on this trip. We have a lot of mutual friends. Um, I think we've we've sort of uh, met eye to eye on a bunch of stuff on this trip and, and had a lot of fun traveling together. And we've ended up having these conversations about Europe, about the differences, about the kind of higher level of, of professional possibilities for climbers in Europe, uh, possibly. In terms of talking to American climbers, like what should we be paying attention to over there? Like why or what should we be paying attention to in Europe? Maybe style, if I had to say anything. Not that I think that Americans have terrible style. The idea is that you shouldn't be a big fish in a small pond, I guess. Okay. That's maybe what we can learn from Europe. Don't be a big fish in a small pond. Just go out and do your thing and have fun. Mm-hmm. And then don't compare yourself too much to others. Okay. Just try and be true to what you want. And again, don't, you know, if you do whatever the grade may be, mm-hmm. don't rest on your laurels. Right. Just keep pushing and keep going what you're after, you know? Keep experiencing, keep keep on being creative and also approach it with a style that's fun, you know? Don't be anorexic. Don't be... <laughs> You know, you shouldn't climb a grade or you shouldn't do something at all costs. There right. should be some sort of balance. Right. And I think that's definitely, that's what I learned for myself from the time that I spent in Europe. Okay. Was that it, not anything should come at all costs. There should be some balance and that style matters. Mm-hmm. That you should still be a human, that you should still be a good person, that you should still be positive. You should still be courteous around your friends and those around you who support you have appreciation for everything Mm -hmm. maybe that's what i'm aiming at that um it's more than just the climb you know and your style and your approach that matters a lot i would say definitely embrace everything you know if something can be done trad awesome if something can be done sport awesome but it's not something where you have to draw black and white lines Mm -hmm. there is room for personal interpretation so I have a tendency to believe that in the United States, you know, we have a tradition that comes from England. And before rock climbing, at least free climbing in the United States was even really established, the British and the continental Europeans had sort of already drawn these lines between them. We have a tendency to take our ethics from the British, the no bolts, you know, the ground up, the sort of old school hard man kind of ethic. So... I think in the United States, a lot of climbers tend to sort of still group Europeans in this this group of like having not very many ethics or not, you know, pushing the dangerous end of climbing. And I was wondering, like, what what are some of the ethical lines that they draw in Europe? Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that is a misconception. Yeah, absolutely. If you look at alpine sport climbing in mm-hmm. Europe, the majority of it is all approach ground up. Right. And if somebody wraps, wrap bolts, even an alpine line mm-hmm. in Europe, normally people refuse to climb it, even if it may be a good line, you know. Right. And then if it comes to 
free soloing and the rest of it, I think Europe's equally bold. For example, there's another Austrian, Hans Jörg Auer, who free soloed the fish on the south face of the Marmolada, mm -hmm. which is 27 pitches of 512C. Right. And this isn't crack climbing, this is technical thin onsite thin climbing. Yeah, face and slab climbing, yeah. really. And he's also, you know, free climbed the Salathe and um, I believe Golden Gate in Yosemite, mm -hmm. as well as the hallucinogen wall in um, the Black Canyon. Sure. And how many Americans have heard of him? I thought the hallucinogen was climbed by Hayden Kennedy. No. I mean, maybe Hayden's repeated it. <laughs> no, he hasn't. I'm just making that up. <laughs> <laughs> and then you can go on along the lines of, you know, my best friend and mentor, Mukmeir, who's an individual who has also done 20 pitches of 512A, 512B, mm -hmm. free solo on site in the Dolomites. Right. Free solo on site. And again, we're not talking about a crack climb. We're talking about technical, crimpy face climbing, mm -hmm. free solo mm -hmm. on site. Right. And then you talk ethics. Right. And then the rest of it. So. I think that that's a slight misconception. Sure. I think there's things that you can take from both sides and appreciate. Mm -hmm. And again, that it's not a black and white issue. Right. There's great things about the American approach. There's great things about the European approach. And then I think, again, it comes back to it's important to do to just follow your heart and to not worry too much about. I mean, if you're doing as long as you're not hurting anybody else mm -hmm. other than potentially yourself, obviously, if you're free soloing. Sure. As long as you're not hurting anybody else or causing irreparable damage, just do your thing. Be it competition climbing, be it trad climbing, be it sport climbing, right. whatever you're into, go for it. Awesome. And see where it leads, you know? Well, can we expect you to uh, be hanging out in the queue for a while? I think so. I think I'll be here there the next couple of years. Traveling a lot, I hope. Mm -hmm. But um, I enjoy living there. Um, I'm excited about some of the climbing that I've been developing in the Sandias and in southern New Mexico. and I'm happy to be there definitely for the next couple of years. I have whimsical tendencies. Who knows? Maybe I'll be in Cape Town next year. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks, Cody. Thanks Thank for sitting you, down. Always got, a pleasure. We got five more days in Columbia. We do. Let's make the most of them. Right on. Okay, I want to thank my guest Cody Roth for sitting down. I also want to thank the lovely Alexandra, who made a cameo appearance there. Her and Ricardo Ricci were our great hosts at Refugio La Roca. I want to thank them with all my heart. And also thanks to Burr for his little cameo appearances there. If you have anything to say about this or any other episode of The Enorma Cast or you just want to chat... Please remember you can get in touch with me at chris at enormacast.com or you can leave comments over at the site. So please do. And remember, tell your friends, get out there and climb. The spring is upon us. And don't forget to check your knot. Now's the time our sprockets been we done. <laughs> Until next time, auf Wiedersehen!
flat. The teachers told me that's where it's